Section twenty one of Volume One C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume One C, Section twenty one. Chapter Thirty, Part Four. Anne became pregnant soon after her marriage, and this event both gave great satisfaction to the king, and was regarded by the people as a strong proof of the queen's former modesty and virtue. The Parliament was again assembled, and Henry, in conjunction with the great council of the nation, proceeded still in those gradual and secure steps by which they loosened their connections with the see of rome and repressed the usurpations of the roman pontiff an act was made against all appeals to rome in causes of matrimony divorces wills and other suits cognizable in ecclesiastical courts appeals esteemed dishonourable to the kingdom by subjecting it to a foreign jurisdiction and found to be very vexatious by the expense and the delay of justice which necessarily attended them. The more to show his disregard to the Pope, Henry, finding the new queen's pregnancy to advance, publicly owned his marriage, and in order to remove all doubts with regard to its lawfulness, he prepared measures for declaring, by a formal sentence, the invalidity of his marriage with Catherine, a sentence which ought naturally to have preceded his espousing of Anne. The king, even amidst his scruples and remorses on account of his first marriage, had always treated Catherine with respect and distinction, and he endeavoured by every soft and persuasive art to engage her to depart from her appeal to Rome and her opposition to his divorce. Finding her obstinate in maintaining the justice of her cause, he had totally forborne all visits and intercourse with her, and had desired her to make choice of any one of his palaces in which she should please to reside. She had fixed her abode for some time at Amphill, near Dunstable, and it was in this latter town that Cranmer, now created Archbishop of Canterbury, on the death of Warham, was appointed to open his court for examining the validity of her marriage. The near neighbourhood of the place was chosen in order to deprive her of all plea of ignorance, and as she made no answer to the citation, either by herself or proxy, she was declared contumacious, and the primate proceeded to the examination of the cause. The evidence of Arthur's consummation of his marriage were anew produced. The opinions of the universities were read, together with the judgment pronounced two years before by the convocations both of Canterbury and York, and after these preliminary steps Cranmer proceeded to a sentence, and annulled the king's marriage with Catherine as unlawful and invalid. By a subsequent sentence he ratified the marriage with Anne Boleyn, who soon after was publicly crowned queen, 
with all the pomp and dignity suited to that ceremony. To complete the king's satisfaction on the conclusion of this intricate and vexatious affair, she was safely delivered of a daughter who received the name of Elizabeth, and who afterwards swayed the sceptre with such renown and felicity. Henry was so much delighted with the birth of this child, that soon after he conferred on her the title of Princess of Wales, a step somewhat irregular, as she could only be presumptive, not apparent heir of the crown. But he had, during his former marriage, thought proper to honour his daughter Mary with that title, and he was determined to bestow on the offspring of his present marriage the same mark of distinction, as well as to exclude the elder princess from all hopes of the succession. His regard for the new queen seemed rather to increase than diminish by his marriage, and all men expected to see the entire ascendant of one who had mounted a throne from which her birth had set her at so great a distance, and who, by a proper mixture of severity and indulgence, had long managed so intractable a spirit as that of Henry. In order to efface as much as possible all marks of his first marriage, Lord Mountjoy was sent to the unfortunate and divorced queen to inform her that she was thenceforth to be treated only as Princess Dowager of Wales, and all means were employed to make her acquiesce in that determination. But she continued obstinate in maintaining the validity of her marriage, and she would admit no person to her presence who did not approach her with the accustomed ceremonial. Henry, forgetting his wonted generosity towards her, employed menaces against such of her servants as complied with her commands in this particular, but was never able to make her relinquish her title and pretensions. When intelligence was conveyed to Rome of these transactions, so injurious to the authority and reputation of the Holy See, the conclave was in a rage and all the cardinals of the imperial faction urged the Pope to proceed to a definitive sentence, and to dart his spiritual thunders against Henry. But Clement proceeded no further than to declare the nullity of Cranmer's sentence, as well as that of Henry's second marriage, threatening him with excommunication if before the first of November ensuing he did not replace everything in the condition in which it formerly stood. An event had happened from which the pontiff expected a more amicable conclusion of the difference, and which hindered him from carrying matters to extremity against the king. The pope had claims upon the duchy of Ferrara for the sovereignty of Reggio and Modena, and having submitted his pretensions to the arbitration of the emperor, he was surprised to find a sentence pronounced against him. Enraged at this disappointment, he hearkened to proposals of amity from Francis, and when that monarch made overtures of marrying the Duke of Orléans, his second son, 
to Catherine of Medici, niece of the Pope, Clement gladly embraced an alliance by which his family was so much honoured. An interview was even appointed between the Pope and French king at Marseilles, and Francis, as a common friend, there employed his good offices in mediating an accommodation between his new ally and the king of England. Had this connection of France with the court of Rome taken place a few years sooner, there had been little difficulty in adjusting the quarrel with Henry. The king's request was an ordinary one, and the same plenary power of the Pope which had granted a dispensation for his espousing of Catherine could easily have annulled the marriage. But in the progress of the quarrel the state of affairs was much changed on both sides. Henry had shaken off much of that reverence which he had earlier imbibed for the apostolic see, and finding that his subjects of all ranks had taken part with him, and willingly complied with his measures for breaking off foreign dependence, he had begun to relish his spiritual authority, and would scarcely, it was apprehended, be induced to renew his submissions to the Roman pontiff. The Pope, on the other hand, now ran a manifest risk of infringing his authority by a compliance with the king, and as a sentence of divorce could no longer be rested on nullities in Julius's bull, but would be construed as an acknowledgment of papal usurpations, it was foreseen that the Lutherans would thence take occasion of triumph, and would persevere more obstinately in their present principles. But notwithstanding these obstacles, Francis did not despair of mediating an agreement. He observed that the king had still some remains of prejudice in favour of the Catholic Church, and was apprehensive of the consequences which might ensue from too violent innovations. He saw the interest that Clement had in preserving the obedience of England, which was one of the richest jewels in the papal crown, and he hoped that these motives on both sides would facilitate a mutual agreement, and would forward the effects of his good offices. Francis first prevailed on the Pope to promise that if the king would send a proxy to Rome, and thereby submit his cause to the Holy See, he should appoint commissioners to meet at Cambrai, and form the process, and he should immediately afterwards pronounce the sentence of divorce required of him. Bellet, Bishop of Paris, was next dispatched to London, and obtained a promise from the king that he would submit his cause to the Roman consistory, provided the cardinals of the imperial faction were excluded from it. The prelate carried this verbal promise to Rome, and the Pope agreed that if the king would sign a written agreement to the same purpose, his demands should be fully complied with. A day was appointed for the return of the messengers, and all Europe regarded this affair, which had threatened a violent rupture between England and the Romish Church, as drawing towards an amicable conclusion. But the greatest affairs often depend on the most frivolous incidents. The courier 
who carried the king's written promise was detained beyond the day appointed news was brought to rome that a libel had been published in england against the court of rome and a farce acted before the king in derision of the pope and cardinals the pope and cardinals entered into the consistory inflamed with anger and by a precipitate sentence the marriage of henry and catherine was pronounced valid and henry declared to be excommunicated if he refused to adhere to it two days after the courier arrived and clement who had been hurried from his usual prudence found that though he heartily repented of this hasty measure it would be difficult for him to retract it or replace affairs on the same footing as before it is not probable that the pope had he conducted himself with ever so great moderation and temper could hope during the lifetime of henry to have regained much authority or influence in england that monarch was of a temper both impetuous and obstinate and having proceeded so far in throwing off the papal yoke he never could again have been brought tamely to bend his neck to it even at the time when he was negotiating a reconciliation with rome he either entertained so little hopes of success or was so indifferent about the event that he had assembled a parliament and continued to enact laws totally destructive of the papal authority the people had been prepared by degrees for this great innovation each preceding session had retrenched somewhat from the power and profits of the pontiff care had been taken during some years to teach the nation that a general council was much superior to a pope but now a bishop preached every sunday at paul's cross in order to inculcate the doctrine that the pope was entitled to no authority at all beyond the bounds of his own diocese the proceedings of the parliament showed that they had entirely adopted this opinion and there is reason to believe that the king after having procured a favourable sentence from Rome, which would have removed all doubts with regard to his second marriage and the succession, might indeed have lived on terms of civility with the Roman pontiff, but never would have surrendered him to any considerable share of his assumed prerogative. The importance of the laws passed this session even before intelligence arrived of the violent resolutions taken at rome is sufficient to justify this opinion all payments made to the apostolic chamber all provisions bulls dispensations were abolished monasteries were subjected to the visitation and government of the king alone the law for punishing heretics was moderated the ordinary was prohibited from imprisoning or trying any person upon suspicion alone without presentment by two lawful witnesses and it was declared that to speak against the pope's authority was no heresy bishops were to be appointed by a conge de allire from the crown or in case of the dean and chapter's refusal 
by letters patent, and no recourse was to be had to Rome for pails, bulls, or provisions. Campeggio and Ginucci, two Italians, were deprived of the bishoprics of Salisbury and Worcester, which they had hitherto enjoyed. The law which had been formerly made against paying annates or first fruits, but which had been left in the king's power to suspend or enforce, was finally established, and a submission which was exacted two years before from the clergy, and which had been obtained with great difficulty, received this session the sanction of Parliament. In this submission, the clergy acknowledged that convocations ought to be assembled by the king's authority only. They promised to enact no new canons without his consent, and they agreed that he should appoint thirty-two commissioners in order to examine the old canons and abrogate such as should be found prejudicial to his royal prerogative. An appeal was also allowed from the bishop's court to the king in chancery. But the most important law passed this session was that which regulated the succession to the crown. The marriage of the king with Catherine was declared unlawful, void, and of no effect. The primate's sentence annulling it was ratified, and the marriage with Queen Anne was established and confirmed. The crown was appointed to descend to the issue of this marriage, and failing them to the king's heirs forever. An oath likewise was enjoined to be taken in favour of this order of succession, under the penalty of imprisonment during the king's pleasure, and forfeiture of goods and chattels. And all slander against the king, queen, or their issue, was subjected to the penalty of misprision of treason. After these compliances, the Parliament was prorogued, and those acts so contemptuous towards the Pope, and so destructive of his authority, were passed at the very time that Clement pronounced his hasty sentence against the King. Henry's resentment against Queen Catherine, on account of her obstinacy, was the reason why he excluded her daughter from all hopes of succeeding to the crown, contrary to his first intentions, when he began the process of divorce, and of dispensation for a second marriage. The king found his ecclesiastical subjects as compliant as the laity. The convocation ordered that the act against appeals to Rome together with the king's appeal from the pope to a general council should be affixed to the doors of all the churches in the kingdom and they voted that the bishop of rome had by the law of god no more jurisdiction in england than any other foreign bishop and that the authority which he and his predecessors had there exercised was only by usurpation and by the sufferance of english princes four persons alone opposed this vote in the lower house and one doubted it passed unanimously in the upper the bishops went so far in their complaisance that they took out new commissions from the crown in which all their spiritual and episcopal authority 
was expressly affirmed to be derived ultimately from the civil magistrate and to be entirely dependent on his good pleasure the oath regarding the succession was generally taken throughout the kingdom fisher bishop of rochester and sir thomas more were the only persons of note that entertained scruples with regard to its legality fisher was obnoxious on account of some practices into which his credulity rather than any bad intentions seems to have betrayed him but more was the person of greatest reputation in the kingdom for virtue and integrity and as it was believed that his authority would have no influence on the sentiments of others great pains were taken to convince him of the lawfulness of the oath he declared that he had no scruple with regard to the succession and thought that the parliament had full power to settle it he offered to draw an oath himself which would ensure his allegiance to the heir appointed but he refused the oath prescribed by law because the preamble of that oath asserted the legality of the king's marriage with anne and thereby implied that his former marriage with catherine was unlawful and invalid cranmer the primate and cromwell now secretary of state who highly loved and esteemed more entreated him to lay aside his scruples and their friendly importunity seemed to weigh more with him than all the penalties attending his refusal he persisted however in a mild though firm manner to maintain his resolution and the king irritated against him as well as fisher ordered both to be indicted upon the statute and committed prisoners to the tower the parliament being again assembled conferred on the king the title of the only supreme head on earth of the church of england as they had already invested him with all the real power belonging to it in this memorable act the parliament granted him power or rather acknowledged his inherent power to visit and repress redress reform order correct restrain or amend all errors heresies abuses offences contempts and enormities which fell under any spiritual authority or jurisdiction they also declared it treason to attempt imagine or speak evil against the king queen or his heirs or to endeavour depriving them of their dignities or titles they gave him a right to all the annates and tithes of benefices which had formerly been paid to the court of rome they granted him a subsidy and a fifteenth they attainted more and fisher for misprision of treason and they completed the union of england and wales by giving to that principality all the benefit of the english laws thus the authority of the popes like all exorbitant power was ruined by the excess of its acquisitions and by stretching its pretensions beyond what it was possible for any human principles or prepossessions to sustain indulgences had in former ages 
tended extremely to enrich the Holy See. But being openly abused, they served to excite the first commotions and opposition in Germany. The prerogative of granting dispensations had also contributed much to attach all the sovereign princes and great families in Europe to the papal authority. But meeting with an unlucky concurrence of circumstances was now the cause why England separated herself from the Romish communion. The acknowledgment of the king's supremacy introduced there a greater simplicity in the government by uniting the spiritual with the civil power and preventing disputes about limits which never could be exactly determined between the contending jurisdictions a way was also prepared for checking the exorbitances of superstition and breaking down those shackles by which all human reason policy and industry had so long been encumbered the prince it may be supposed being head of the religion as well as of the temporal jurisdiction of the kingdom though he might sometimes employ the former as an engine of government had no interest like the roman pontiff in nourishing its excessive growth and except when blinded by his own ignorance or bigotry would be sure to retain it with intolerable limits and prevent its abuses and on the whole there followed from this revolution many beneficial consequences though perhaps neither foreseen nor intended by the persons who had the chief hand in conducting it while henry proceeded with so much order and tranquillity in changing the national religion and while his authority seemed entirely secure in england he was held in some inquietude by the state of affairs in ireland and in scotland the earl of kildare was deputy of ireland under the duke of richmond the king's natural son who bore the title of lieutenant and as kildare was accused of some violences against the family of ossory his hereditary enemies he was summoned to answer for his conduct he left his authority in the hands of his son, who, hearing that his father was thrown into prison and was in danger of his life, immediately took up arms and, joining himself to O'Neill, O'Carroll, and other Irish nobility, committed many ravages, murdered Allen, Archbishop of Dublin, and laid siege to that city. Kildare, meanwhile, died in prison, and his son, persevering in his revolt made applications to the emperor who promised him assistance the king was obliged to send over some forces to ireland which so harassed the rebels that this young nobleman finding the emperor backward in fulfilling his promises was reduced to the necessity of surrendering himself prisoner to lord leonard gray the new deputy brother to the marquis of dorset he was carried over to england together with his five uncles and after trial and conviction they were all brought to public justice though two of the uncles in order to save the family had pretended to join the king's party the earl of angus had acquired the entire ascendant in scotland and having gotten possession of the king's person then in early youth 
he was able by means of that advantage and by employing the power of his own family to retain the reins of government the queen dowager however his consort bred him great disturbance for having separated herself from him on account of some jealousies and disgusts and having procured a divorce she had married another man of quality of the name of stuart and she joined all the discontented nobility who opposed angus's authority james himself was dissatisfied with the slavery to which he was reduced he incited first walter scott then the earl of lennox to attempt by force of arms the freeing him from the hands of angus both enterprises failed of success but james impatient of restraint found means at last of escaping to stirling where his mother then resided and having summoned all the nobility to attend him he overturned the authority of the douglases and obliged angus and his brother to fly into england where they were protected by henry the king of scotland being now arrived at years of majority took the government into his own hands and employed himself with great spirit and valour in repressing those feuds ravages and disorders which though they disturbed the course of public justice served to support the martial spirit of the scots and contributed by that means to maintain national independency he was desirous of renewing the ancient league with the french nation but finding francis in close union with england and on that account somewhat cold in hearkening to his proposals he received the more favourably the advances of the emperor who hoped by means of such an ally to breed disturbance to england he offered the scottish king the choice of three princesses his own near relations and all of the name of mary his sister the dowager of hungary his niece a daughter of portugal or his cousin the daughter of henry whom he pretended to dispose of unknown to her father james was more inclined to the latter proposal had it not upon reflection been found impractical and his natural propensity to france at last prevailed over all other considerations the alliance with francis necessarily engaged james to maintain peace with england but though invited by his uncle henry to confer with him at newcastle and concert common measures for repressing the ecclesiastics in both kingdoms and shaking off the yoke of rome he could not be prevailed on by entering england to put himself in the king's power in order to have a pretext for refusing the conference he applied to the pope and obtained a brief forbidding him to engage in any personal negotiations with an enemy of the holy see from these measures henry easily concluded that he could very little depend on the friendship of his nephew but those events took not place till some time after our present period end of section twenty one chapter thirty part four